Take your copy of God's Word and turn to First uh, Samuel chapter two. The Bible is uh, a beautifully written book. Sometimes we lose sight of just what a what an amazing work of literature it is. Now we understand we we hold to the truth that that God has ordained, He has inspired, He has, as Peter tells us. In, in the ages past, moved his, 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 those that he used to give us his word, he moved them along like the wind moves a sail. Every word is inspired of God. I believe the structures themselves are inspired by the Lord. What I mean by that is that there are literary structures in the Bible that are, I believe, divinely inspired. There are genres of literature that are used in the scriptures. There are patterns that we find in the way the text is laid out that emphasize key themes, key ideas, and highlight them for us in, a, in, a, in the format of a particular literary structure. One of these literary tools is called a chiasm. If you'll look at the screen, a chiasm is based on the Greek word chi, which looks like the letter X. And the idea is if you can just imagine in your eye, in your mind's eye how an X is shaped, it starts at the outside and works toward a center point in the middle and then works back out, if you will. Well, a chiasm begins and ends in the same place, and then as it works through that particular structure, and sometimes a chiasm can be found in a whole book, Sometimes I think it can be found in a passage of Scripture or a paragraph. I think the whole Bible itself could be fit into a chiastic structure, which means, think for just a second, how does the Bible begin? In the beginning, God created. How does it end? God recreates a new heaven and a new earth. And all the way through the Scriptures, then it works up to this pinnacle point, that being, I believe, Jesus himself. In the Gospels, his birth, his perfect life, his death, his resurrection. So a chiasm, if you will, is, is a way that I think the genius of it is it helped, I believe, those first readers of it memorize and understand what it was saying. So it moves through a sequence of truths, particular topics, to a primary point, and then backs back out. It's like a mirror. So you see these points working toward a climax, and then it mirrors itself and moves back out. An example on the screen there comes from Matthew chapter 6. No one can serve two masters, Jesus says in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. So do you see the two parallel themes on the beginning and at the end? You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God in money. In the next point there, you're going to hate the one, you're going to despise the other. And then the climax, if you will, the primary point there, Jesus says it's the affections of our heart that matter. You're going to love the one. You're going to be devoted to that one. Second Samuel, excuse me, First Samuel chapter 2, Hannah's prayer, Hannah's song of praise is developed in this chiastic form. All right. Let's look at the text together. And the reason I'm taking a minute to point this out to you is because the outline that you have in the sermon notes is based not on verse by verse, but on the chiastic structure that we see in this. OK, so those are the points of your sermon based on how this particular paragraph is structured. But let's just read it. Let's just read the text. I'm in first Samuel, chapter two. 
Hannah has prayed for this child. It says up in verse 27, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I have made to him. And so she comes back there to Shiloh, back to the place of worship to give this child over to the Lord, to go into the care of the priesthood and to be used as the Lord would want to use him for all the days of his life. Now, there's debate as to whether or not this prayer is, whether or not all of the events that we see in First and Second Samuel come exactly in the chronological order. Some commentators say that she prayed this prayer in, in addition to what she had prayed earlier. Others say no. She prayed this prayer as she came and brought little Samuel and gave him there to Eli. And I, and I think that's probably the case. Either way, here she comes. And in chapter 2, verse 1, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. Remember what horn is? It's our strength, okay? It's our, it's our prowess, our ability. My horn, excuse me, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low And he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. We'll stop there. So Hannah's prayer, her song, fits into the structure. All right? Take a look at it for just a second. Just look at it from, a, from the front and from the backside and work our way to the middle. It begins with the reality that the Lord gives strength. Using that terminology of exalting or lifting up the strength or the horn of Hannah. It ends with the Lord exalting the strength or exalting the horn of his king, of his anointed. So at the beginning we see this concept of strength. It says next... That the proud are silenced and the warriors are broken. And there's a picture of judgment there. There's this picture of the God of knowledge who weighs all actions. At the end of the text there, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. So there's the understanding of judgment. There's this idea of reversal. This is a picture we see all the way through Scripture, right? God just doesn't do things the way we would expect him to do or with the people we would expect him to do it with. He's a God who works through reversals. And that's what Hannah brings to light here. The bows of the mighty are broken. The feeble become strong. 
The full are all of a sudden hungry, and those who are hungry are fed. The adversaries of the Lord at the end are broken in pieces. His faithful ones are guarded. The mighty are cast into darkness. So there's this reversal. And then at the center of this text is the picture of sovereign God who kills and brings back up. Who makes poor and who gives prosperity. So that's how this text is diagrammed, if you will, or laid out from a literary standpoint. And I want us to kind of take some time and think about that. Hannah's prayer here is a summary of all of the rest of what we'll see in Samuel, First and Second Samuel. And I believe it's a summary of what we see really throughout the rest of the Old Testament into the New. Key themes that she sings about here. I believe she prophesies in a sense of something that she really doesn't understand. But there's key themes here. She talks about there's none like the Lord. We've sung about it all morning, and that's a theme we see demonstrated throughout the rest of Samuel. She has this idea that it's not by might or strength that a man prevails. And we're going to see that over and over in Samuel and throughout the rest of the Old Testament. There's this idea here that he gives strength to his king. And we will see that, right? In King David, but will we not also see that in the New Testament in his really anointed king, King Jesus, God giving him strength? We see this concept here that God is the one who is going to exalt or bring low, lift up or put down. And we see that through all the rest of the scriptures, I believe. So this is how God works in redemption. This is his redemptive story. And it's laid out for us here in these ten verses. The focus of this, according to many commentators, and I think they're right in that regard, is that as Hannah comes into the presence of the Lord, previously in chapter 1 and here, she comes in to worship. And when she comes in to worship the one true God, everything changes. Everything changes. Who is the one that she comes to worship? Who is the one that we come to worship? First off, it says that he is incomparable. He alone is holy, and he alone is the source of strength and salvation. Hannah, in the first verse there, there's three personal pronouns. My heart, my horn, and my mouth. And literally what she says here is my heart jumps up, exults. The idea is to jump up and leap up. My heart leaps in the Lord. Then she says my strength is lifted up. In the Lord. And then she says, My mouth is opened up in the Lord. The translations are going to be different in different English translations. Some of them say that she smiles in the face of her enemies. Others, as we see in the ESV, says she derides her enemies. The picture here is a mouth that was silent, right? In chapter one, she didn't respond to Elkanah, she did not respond to Panina. Her mouth was silent. Here, all of a sudden, her mouth is open, and her mouth is open in proclaiming the testimony. It says, I will rejoice in your salvation. So here's this picture of Hannah's heart rejoicing, her strength being lifted up, her mouth being opened up. In verse 2, we have another literary, beautiful Hebrew poem, if you will. It's just repetitive parallel. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. It's saying the same thing three different ways. Do you see that? 
He is completely set apart. There is no one like the Lord. He is unique. There is none other. It repeats the same thing in the second phrase. There is none beside you. And it repeats it in that third phrase. There's no rock like our God. Or literally, it could be no mountain like our God. What this is saying that there is no one holy like God and there's no security or safety found anywhere except in the mountain of our Lord. And that's what Hannah is testifying to. That's what she's singing here. God is incomparable for Hannah. Then, if we go to the end and see in this amazing ending of this prayer, of this song... There's this picture of what Hannah, I don't believe, really understands what she's saying from a full scriptural perspective. But here she says, there is none holy like the Lord, and he will give strength to his king. What? This is in the days when there is no king in Israel, and everyone does what is right in his own eyes. There is no king, Hannah. What are you talking about? And he will give, he will exalt the horn He will lift up the strength of his anointed. That's the first time in the Bible that we see this term anointed refer to an individual. Now, individuals have been anointed in the verb sense, but no one has been referred to as his anointed up until this point in time. And in the Hebrew, the word is Mashiach, Messiah. Hannah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is looking way beyond Shiloh. And as she does, under the inspiration of the Spirit, I believe, in a time when there was no king in Israel and everybody was doing whatever they wanted to do, Hannah sings or prays that there is a king coming. And in the short term, that will be fulfilled through her son. Now, her son is not that king, but he will anoint him. He'll anoint Saul and David. But even beyond that, There's this picture of this anointed one coming, this king coming, who is going to turn the world upside down. And so our attention should be drawn way past 1 and 2 Samuel, right? I'll have more on that in just a minute. There is no one comparable to God. He alone is holy. He alone is the source of strength. He alone is unique, the mountain of our security. That was true for Hannah. It would be true for David. Is it true for you? Why did you come today? Why are we here? Why are we here? Now, I believe God draws every person that walks in this building. But the question that this part of this text would ask us is, what makes your heart leap? Who or what is your source of strength? Who or what is the subject when your mouth is open? Think about it. Secondly, as we move to point B, if you're looking at that chiastic structure, not only is God incomparable, He is omniscient. His knowledge is complete, which makes Him alone the perfect judge. The perfect judge. It says, Talk no more very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth in verse 3. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. Think about a balance. Think about the balance of the scales. Then later on, 
in the text. It says that he will guard the feet of his faithful ones. The wicked shall be cast off or cut off into darkness, and not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He is omniscient. He knows all. He is the perfect judge. Now, Hannah obviously probably had Penina in mind. Right? Talk. Would you just shut up in your arrogance? Is, is, is how you could paraphrase that? But Penina, with all of her boasting, with all of her arrogance, with all of the way she just rode this woman hard constantly, Penina is just a representative of all of us who are proud and arrogant and don't know when to be quiet. She's just a picture of, of all of us whom Hannah is speaking to that would say, in your pride, it's just best that you stop talking. Now, pride is expressed in a lot of ways, right? But it's usually and best expressed in words and the attitudes behind those words. And this speaks directly into that as, as Hannah is, is, is speaking here. It'd be better if proud people just didn't talk so much. Why? Because when we recognize that God's knowledge is perfect, that he is fully knowledgeable of every aspect of everything, period, then when we recognize this, that next to him we know nothing. <laughs> that next to him we, we, don't, we can't speak. We're like Isaiah. We're, our mouths are silent. And when we see him exalted in that way and see him as we should accurately, then our mouths are quieted. He knows us. His knowledge of us is perfect. He weighs and judges the thoughts and intentions and actions and words of every human being. And so that's what the song speaks about here. That's what Hannah is singing about. Stop in your pride. Stop in your arrogance. God knows, and by Him actions are weighed. He will judge the ends of the earth. This is true for individuals. This is true for the nations, it tells us in the book of Revelation. Pride would lead you to ignore this point. Or pride would lead you to say, I'm glad he's here and hears it. Pride would lead me to think, man, I'm sure glad that person's here or I wish that other one was. Pride causes us to look somewhere besides in the mirror. When we read texts like this and recognize God's perfect, unlimited knowledge of every thought and intention of my heart. And what Scripture tells us is that God hates pride. It's one of the things that the writer of Proverbs tells us that He hates. And that He will put it down. But that those who humble themselves, He does lift up. Praise God for His grace in that. The humble heart comes before the Lord like David does in Psalm 39, 139 and says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and see if there is any wicked or offensive way in me, whatever version you may have memorized, some grievous ways is the way the ESV says it. Know my thoughts, know my heart, see if there's any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. That's the, that's the prayer of the humble. That's who Hannah is singing about here. God is omniscient. Thirdly, God is omnipotent. In his power, he reverses. Human position. He reverses 
human power. In his power, he exalts himself above anything and everything else. Look at verse 4. Hannah sings that the bows of the mighty are broken. It's a picture of military, physical strength. Those who are strong are made weak. Those who are weak are made strong, she says. The feeble bind on strength. He reverses power and position. He reverses where we, where we stack up even within society. In verse 5, those who were full are now standing out on the side of the road holding a sign saying, we'll work for food. They hire themselves out, not for money, not for payment, but just for bread to survive. And then those who were hungry, that's been reversed. They've ceased to be hungry. Those who were barren, all of a sudden are fulfilled. Bore seven children, it says there. The number seven is a picture of fulfillment, a picture of perfection or wholeness in the Bible. The barren who was empty all of a sudden is filled. She has seven. And she who had many children is feeble or forlorn. It's a reversal. It's a reversal. Remember, part of what we saw earlier in Hannah's life was her her, the struggle she had personally and the culture wanting to put upon her its own identity. Hannah, you're not the woman you need to be if you don't have children. Here that identity is reversed. God's power reverses those things. It says in verse 9, He will guard the feet of His faithful ones. The wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. So God reverses our position and He reverses our power if it's centered in on ourselves. He reverses our security if it's centered in on ourselves. Think about it. Saul, as we will read shortly, was a head taller than anybody else in the country. He stood out because of his size and, and his physique and his handsomeness. What we read about Saul later on is that he has fallen on Mount Geboa. And David, as he grieves Saul, sings how the mighty have fallen. David, on the other hand, is the youngest. Some say the smallest of those sons. And David is the one who we see lifted up and made strong. And at the end of David's life, he will sing, You exalted me above my foes. There are two foundational truths that I think underlie not just this text, but underline everything else that we find in the rest of the Bible. Look at what it says in verse 8. The pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them He has set the world. Do you see that? It it, it kind of comes on the coattails of verses 6 and 7 with the sovereign God who kills and brings to life, who raises up and puts down, makes poor and makes rich. How, how and why does He do that? Because the earth is His. He establishes the pillars of the foundation of the earth are belong to the Lord, and on them He has set the world. Related to that is in the end of verse 9, Not by might shall man prevail. God has built this world, established it, ordered it, and maintains it. And He determines how and when and who will succeed and by what means they will succeed. And it is not by strength or education or investments or pedigree or denomination or religiosity. 
God reverses all that. He reverses all that. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, says the Lord. Right? Remember that in Isaiah 55? So in his omnipotence, in his power, he reverses everything. And that's what we see unfolding in this part of the story. As we come to what I think are the central verses of the text, in verse 6, God is sovereign. He alone is the creator, sustainer, and ruler of all things. And Hannah puts this, the Holy Spirit leads her to put this in the starkest of terms. You can't miss this. God kills. We first read that truth in Deuteronomy. It is the Lord who takes life. And it is the Lord who gives it. Some say in the Old Testament there's not a clear understanding of resurrection. I think Job would argue with that. And I think Hannah would too. Because clearly there's an understanding here. The Lord kills and brings to life. And if you say, well, that just means birth. Okay, next does not mean birth. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. It is God who is sovereign over life and death. And in our humility and with eyes of faith... If, if we think about life and don't think about death, it's a position of pride and it's dangerous. On the other hand, if we go through life and are, are just obsessed with sickness and death and don't see the new life that is ours in Christ in its own way, that's arrogance as well. And this eyes of faith, this picture of this gracious, merciful, sovereign God calls us to recognize that he is the author of life. He is the one who determines how long we live and when we leave. He is also the one who determines who is poor, who is rich, those low, he exalts. Those who are exalted, we saw earlier, he brings down. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. Poverty and riches are in his power. Yes, we can be wise in the way we invest. Sure, we can be wise in what we save. We can work hard. We can be diligent. We can do all those things, right? But ultimately, all of that is in the Lord's hands. You can work out. You can do well with your diet. You can do all those things. And the Lord is going to determine at some point in time, you'll draw your last breath, whether you're healthy or sick. And in that, we rest. In that, we humble ourselves and recognize just how awesome He is and how badly we need Him. You know, it's, uh, I love music. I love all kinds of music. Many of you know that. How many of you have been listening to a song and you go, you know, that sounds like, and your mind goes back. Maybe just a little ways, maybe a long way back. You know, Or you hear a particular artist and go, he sounds a whole lot like Johnny Cash. I heard, I heard one yesterday, a guy I like a lot, and I said, you know, he really sounds like Bob Dylan, but a whole lot better. Because Dylan can't sing a lick. Never could. And it got worse as he gets older. But that's an aside. Um, I love his music, though, okay? But you go, that, he sounds like that. or You know, I've heard that before. Music lovers know that certain artists, certain themes, even certain thematic repetitions in the way notes are laid out are repeated. They're effective. They're popular. They worked 100 years ago or 500 years ago, and they still work today. 
The same is true in Hannah's song. You can be thinking if you know your scriptures at all and go, wait a minute, some of that sounds familiar. Some of what she's singing, some of what she's praying, some of what she's saying, that sounds familiar. David had heard this song in some form, in some way. Turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 22. At the end of his life, David sings a song of deliverance. After the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul, it says. In 2 Samuel 22, Hannah has sung and said that the, there is no one holy like you. There is no rock like our God. David says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield. And look at this, the horn of my salvation. He is the one who lifts up my strength. He is the one who strengthens or brings about my salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. Verse 5, the ways of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. Sheol, he says, entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. I called out to the Lord. And from his temple he heard my cry. David's heard Hannah's song before. Flip over to the book of Luke. In the New Testament, Mary had heard Hannah's song. Mary had heard it. And Mary sings it. Commentators will tell us that Mary had this particular passage from 1 Samuel in mind as she said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant and behold from now on all generations will call me blessed. There's been a reversal. Verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy his name. There is none like the Lord. Verse 50, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. The arrogant he puts down, Mary sings. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's reversed people's hunger. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary sings this song because God has made a promise to her. Come and made a most amazing statement to her. What's she singing about? She's singing about a king. Look right above it. Do not be afraid, Mary, verse 30, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. 
Mary knew what she had been told, and her heart burst forth with her Magnificat, as it is called, her song of praise. Hannah's song of praise echoes through every word that Mary sang all those years later. Hannah was rejoicing in God's faithfulness to give her a son. Mary is doing the same. Mary's doing the same. And what a connection there is between those two boys. Mary's baby would be king, the great king. Who, by the way, raises the dead? Who, by the way, gives new life? This king is the one who has laid down our guilt. He has laid down our burdens and taken our sin upon himself. And he lifts us up with himself into glory. He brings down on judgments those who defy God. And he lifts up those who are humble enough to say, Lord Jesus, I need you. I need you. There's one application from this text. There may be others, but one just leaps off the page. God is incomparable. He alone is holy. He alone gives strength. God alone is omniscient. His knowledge is complete. He knows everything. He is the perfect judge. God alone is omnipotent to reverse position and power, to demolish human strength. And he alone is sovereign over life, over death, the creator. The pillars of the earth are his and he builds upon them. He alone is worthy of worship. He alone is security coming from anything else is idolatry on our part. Esteeming and jumping up over anything else on a regular basis that thrills our hearts above anything else. That's idolatry if it's not him. We need to repent of it. I need to repent of it. There were 55,000 hockey fans last night jumping, exulting over the canes. That's what exult means, okay? Exulting over the canes. I would have been right in the middle of them if I could have afforded a ticket. The question is, why are you here today? Why? Why are we here? This God that Hannah sings to is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the King of kings. This is reality. And when Hannah grasped this reality, it changed her life. It changed her perspective. It changed everything about her. Heath Thomas says, In times of trouble, we want to commend the importance of talking with friends or of spouse, or talking with family, talking to those closest to us. We want to commend the importance of exercise and leisure when times are difficult and when the pains of life extend icy fingers into our world. And still, while we would commend these things, we must ask whether our first action in times of distress is, in fact, worship. Worship, he says, brings transformation. This is the only God who is worthy of our worship. And to come before Him in humble worship will change our lives. Every aspect of them. And nothing will change of any significance until we do. Until we do. When Hannah stopped listening to the voices around her, and when she stopped listening to the voices in her own head, when she got up and resolved to go into the presence of God there at Shiloh in worship, Things changed for her. Really, everything changed for her. Her heart changed. Her perspective changed. 
her singular focus on God changed her. Long before her circumstances changed, her heart was changed. And this is the song of that heart. May it be ours. That's what revival looks like, church. This is a song of a revived heart. That says everything else has shown itself to be empty. All those ideas and conceptions of who I need to be are empty. Who I look in the mirror and tell myself I need to be is empty if it's not based on who I am in Christ. Acknowledging that and repenting of it is, that's, that's, I think that's revival. Let's pray. Father, we, I humbly pray for humility and for transparency, Lord, for openness. Lord, if there's anything in, in my heart, if there's anything in any of our hearts, Lord, that stand in the way of us singing Hannah's song, show us what that is. Create in us a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within us. Thank you that you do not cast us from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from those who are yours. And we pray that your spirit would do that work in our lives. Impress upon the eyes of our hearts and the depth of our soul, Lord, your power, your knowledge, your holiness. Press in on us, Lord, the reality of who you are. We humbly pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.